This is a Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. By now, we're all familiar with the grim rituals of fatal police encounters with black men. The hashtags, the protests, the calls for accountability that may or may not be answered. But what happens to the victims who survive and how can they move forward with their lives? Had it not been for the birth of my son, I don't think I would be here today because his life gave me the will to live. Leon Ford, the author of An Unstoppable Hope, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. On November 11th, 2012, Leon Ford was on his way to his grandmother's house when a traffic stop changed his life. The 19-year-old was pulled over, and even though he was not the suspect police were looking for, they shot Leon Ford five times in the chest. He was partially paralyzed and now uses a wheelchair to move around. For many people, this would have been the end of their public lives, but for Leon Ford, it was the beginning of a new journey. He became an advocate for building community and ending gun violence, delivered a TED Talk on transforming pain into purpose, and co-founded the HEAR Foundation, an organization that aims to bring Pittsburgh residents and police together to build a safer and healthier community. He's also the author of a new memoir, An Unspeakable Hope, Brutality, Forgiveness, and Building a Better Future for My Son. Leon, it's great to talk to you again after almost 10 years. Welcome to A Word. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to share my story. I'm going to tell the audience this up front. I met Leon two years after he was shot. And I can tell you that seeing where he is today is both humbling and amazing. What can you tell us about the moment when you were shot? What was that experience like? I was shot during a traffic stop where they thought I was another person named Lamont Ford. They interrogated me for over 20 minutes on, on the side of a dark road. They threatened me. As I was afraid for my life, I locked my car doors. And one of the officers reached into the window, unlocking my door, opening the door, tried to pull me out of the vehicle. Out of fear, I panicked. I drove off. And one of the officers jumped inside of my vehicle on the passenger side shooting me five times. Almost immediately, I crashed into a porch. And I remember one of the officers yanking me out of the vehicle, slamming me on the ground face down, handcuffing me behind my back. As I laid on the cold concrete, I remember thinking to myself, they tased me. Seconds later, I remember the blood coming out of my mouth, I felt the blood coming out of my chest, and I could um, I could smell the gunpowder. That's when I realized they shot me, and I began to say over and over again, "Why did y'all shoot me?" During that time, 
one of the officers actually knelt next to my head and told me that he hoped that I would die. I was confused. I was afraid that I would die. I was thinking about my family. You know, if I were to die, what story would be told? I had so many thoughts. I began breathing deep breaths, inhale, exhale, up until the ambulance came. Once the ambulance came, I remember they cut my clothes off and they wrote me over onto the gurney. I remember saying over and over again my name. My name is Leon Ford. I repeated my birthday. I repeated my parents' names, their phone numbers. And I remember not wanting to stop talking. I I kept talking because I, I felt if I would stop talking, maybe I would die. And so I kept talking until I passed out. What was it like, I guess, in the hospital when the news was broken to you that you would be partially paralyzed. What, what, what did that do to you emotionally or psychologically? It was devastating to hear that I would never walk again. I vividly remember the doctor saying to me, we have good news and we have bad news. The good news is you're going to survive. The bad news is you will never walk again. And although that news was devastating, I was in so much physical pain that I was numb to those words. And it would take maybe a year or so for that reality to sink in. And when it did sink in, it was heartbreaking. I questioned my manhood. I questioned my purpose. I questioned my life if I wanted to continue on. You know, I struggle with a lot of depression and even suicidal and homicidal thoughts. The crazy part is that you ended up getting charged with assaulting the officers. You were eventually acquitted of assaulting the officers who shot you five times and paralyzed you. What was it like to go through those trials? Because you're already battling depression. You're already dealing with the anger. What was it like to see this entire grotesque system try to then punish you for having the audacity to live? It was heartbreaking. Again, the levels of confusion, the levels of frustration, the levels of resentment that I had toward the system, you know, was insurmountable. However, I refused to be defeated. And that really carried me along with the support of community and the love from my family. Had it not been for that love of family, the support from community, and and ultimately being a new father and thinking about what type of legacy I wanted to leave for my son, I likely would have retaliated against those police officers. Again, I was depressed and, and, and suicidal. When I say I was suicidal and also homicidal, I mean, I did not want to live. And I thought about taking my own life. However, I knew that before I take my own life, I would find much more fulfillment taking the life of a police officer. And so those moments 
were very dark for me. A lot of tears. Every time I would be in the, in the media, in the news, you know, I, I was smiling. But really, I was dying on the inside. Your son was born while you were in the hospital, recovering from being shot by the police. I mean, you guys are recovering in the same, your son is born in the same hospital that you are recovering in. How, how did that shape your path going forward? Was it, you know, like you said, you know, you, you, you were trying to find fulfillment. Was it like, all right, look, my son is only two levels down from me in this hospital. I got to make it through. Were you, were you frustrated that, that you weren't there with them because you were recovering? Like, what was it like going through your recovery and being in the same place with your, your newborn son? When my son was born in that hospital, I was on the, I believe I was on the seventh floor and he was on the fourth floor. My doctors and nurses were amazing. They rolled me downstairs to see my son, to hold him for the first time. And that provided me with a level of hope, an unspeakable hope, we would say, that changed the trajectory of my life. Had it not been for the birth of my son, I don't think I would be here today because his life gave me the will to live. And many of the decisions that I would make after his birth was directly connected to the world that I wanted to create for my son. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on surviving police violence with Leon Ford. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking with Leon Ford, the author of An Unspeakable Hope. Even before you were shot, gun violence had already negatively impacted your life. Can you share some of those experiences with the audience of, of how gun violence had, had impacted you, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh? While I was writing my book, I was also going to therapy. And so a lot of the stories in my book, I'm unpacking my lived experience. And I remember my first time I ever went to church was actually a funeral. My older cousin was murdered. And I remember vividly my dad being there, my aunts and my uncles, my parents, my mom, my grandma, and everyone just crying. And 
I remember passing tissue out to my grandmother. And after the funeral, I ran up to my dad and said, Dad, guess what? I didn't cry. And that was the first time that I remember suppressing my feelings. Maybe a year or so after that funeral, my father was actually shot. I remember my older cousins coming in. They weren't supposed to tell me, but they did. They said, Leon, your dad was shot last night. And I remember the fear that I had, wondering if, like my older cousin who was murdered, if my father had lost his life. Fortunately, he survived. I remember visiting him in the hospital and my dad, he has the uh, never let him see you sweat personality. So he's in the hospital and he's laughing and cracking jokes. Although he was laughing and cracking jokes, you could feel the pain. I lost several friends and loved ones to gun violence, almost to the point of it being normal. I recently lost a really close friend of mine who, who is a musician in Pittsburgh, and that was heartbreaking. You know, we I used to make music, and, and we actually have music together. And as heartbreaking as that loss was, again, it's almost normal to the point where I've become desensitized. And had it not been for therapy, I don't think I would be able to understand the level of trauma associated with loss. Because as I talk to a lot of my other close friends, when I say normal, right, it's really a part of life for a lot of young people to lose people that they love and care about to gun violence, especially, you know, when we think about the many different artists that have been murdered, right? And people feel like they know these artists, they're huge fans. And it seems like, you know, every year there's a huge artist losing their life to gun violence. And so it's devastating. And it's something that's really hard to wrap my mind around personally. You talk a lot about how much therapy has played a role in your life, especially since you were shot and how it helps you maintain your mental focus and helps you battle depression and anxiety. When did you start therapy and how was it made available to you? How did you find a therapist that could talk to you about what you were experiencing, which was not just direct violence from the state, but also violence of the government and going through that trial. Like, how'd you find your therapist and what was that process like? Yeah, so back when we met some about 10 something years ago, that was kind of like the rise of me as a community leader where my influence was growing and I began giving so much of myself to community. And as I began having a, a stronger you know, and a larger impact, I think so many people focused on my hero and not my healing. And so while I was getting many awards, you know, Presidential Volunteer Service Award from President Obama, the Route 100, you know, many other, you know, Pittsburgh, 40 under 40, I felt so empty on the inside. 
And I remember meeting a woman who happened to be a, a therapist. And she had told me how proud of me she was. She shared with me that she's been following me for a while. But she said something that really stood out to me. She said, the pain in my eyes doesn't match the joy in my smile. And she said to me that I deserved a healthy heart. I stayed in contact with her and eventually scheduled an appointment. This was during a time when I was running for city council in Pittsburgh. And as I got a taste of politics, I realized very quickly that public office was just not for me. But I felt guilty because so many people were leaning on me to lead. And I felt as though I got their hopes up. And I struggled. Do I continue to run for city council and do something that I really don't want to do? Or do I walk away and let down all these people who believe in me? And so I scheduled this appointment with my therapist. And we had a breakthrough session. The following day, I wrote and sent out an open letter dropping out of the race for city council, and I began my healing journey. I believe a lot of the decisions that I've made since then were directly connected to my healing. One of the things that you have talked about in a lot lot of different interviews, and I've followed and I've seen this, and and I, and I, I agree with this, you talk about the fact that you feel in some ways you didn't always get as much attention in the community or nationally, you know, this is happening 2012, 2013, 2014. We've got Tremont, we've got Zimmerman, we've got Tamir Rice. We have all these different kinds of stories. And you've said, you know, you think in some ways, maybe you didn't get as much attention as some of these other cases because you had the audacity to live. Talk a little bit about that. Talk about how different it is to operate in this space against police violence, against gun violence in the community when you are a survivor and how that changes, you know, how people rally around you, how, how people even talk about what you experience. Part of it is that I have my voice and many of these people who have lost their lives, the movement becomes their voice. And there is a level of, and I would say unintentional, maybe sometimes intentional, but I'll give people the benefit of the doubt. There's a level of unintentional exploitation that happens when these lives are taken. And I I have personal relationships with several families who have lost people to police violence. There's been a, a movement that helps elevate these voices, but oftentimes to the benefit of those leaders who inherit those voices, but also without considering the pain and trauma of these families. I learned this early on from my personal experience. And when I when I saw kind of how certain people were benefiting from the pain of these families, 
I was very careful about my engagement. And I think it's important that we listen to the voices of these families, the surviving voices of these families, and also listen to the voices of the survivors to see what people actually need. An example I'll give is almost immediately when someone is murdered, their loved ones, maybe a mom or dad or grandmother, grandfather, someone in their family gets prompted up in the media and immediately assumes the role as the voice of the movement, a movement that they didn't ask to be a part of, a movement that has been extremely traumatizing for them, and one that they haven't even been prepared for. And oftentimes, having them speak at protest, oftentimes turning the, the funeral of one of these victims into a huge celebrity-filled celebration of life causes a lot more trauma than people may understand. This isn't something that I'm assuming. This is directly from conversations that I've had with these families behind the scenes. And they won't say it publicly, but they many of them feel used, misused, and abused. They won't say it publicly because oftentimes the movement is a way that they grieve. But every time that they show up to a national event, they have this spotlight. It feels good for the moment, and then they're sent back home by themselves to figure it out. There have been a number of stories over the last year and a half about different parts of the movement, different chapters, Black Lives Matter International. There have been investigations and all sorts of different kinds of groups. From your perspective, as someone who is a survivor and therefore, like you said, you still have a voice, have you had to personally struggle to keep your story from being commodified by different kinds of movements? Have you had to make a phone call to an organization and say, y'all, you can't use my picture? Or, hey, that's actually not what I'm about. Or, I, you know, somebody sent me a link to a GoFundMe that I ain't never heard of, you know, for a scholarship for my son. Like, have you had those experiences? Absolutely. I've had those experiences with messaging, with my personal story. And I've recently connected a mother who lost her son to an attorney who is going to help her send an organization a cease and desist letter because they're raising money using her son's name. And so it's very heartbreaking, you know, and, and there's a thin line, you know, between support and exploitation. And that thin line may be different for each family because, you know, some families, they may have had their loss and they just want to live their lives. Everyone doesn't want to be the face of the movement. And I think it's important that we respect people's wishes. The other thing is, is this. There, there's a, a business in social justice for a lot of people. So we have to recognize the business of social justice. And if we really care about these families, we have to think about how to set them up. I've been very fortunate because of the mentors that I have in my life who have helped guide me through my process of like having 
a settlement. But I know so many families who have received settlements who don't have that money anymore. If I was able to, to get to these families in time, the first thing I'm doing is setting them up with an estate planner. This is what my mentors have done for me. Before I spent a dime, I got connected with five different estate planners. I got connected with five different business attorneys, five different entertainment attorneys, five different accountants. They set me up so that I could make healthy financial decisions. And this is something that I would like to think some of these more influential people starting movements and engaging these families would do. But it's a conversation that we're not having as a community. And then obviously the conversation around therapy and healing. You know, a lot of families, they look at that money as blood money. This is money that's connected to one of the worst moments of their lives. And so I think as a community, you know, as a movement, we should give them the information that they need to be healthy mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and financially. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more about life after police brutality with author and activist Leon Ford. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Leon Ford, the author of An Unspeakable Hope. Leon, you're the co-founder of the HERE Foundation, which is a cooperative effort between the Pittsburgh community and police. Why did you start this group? And and given what happened to you, what is it like emotionally for you to be working with members of the organization that tried to kill you? The why behind the HERE Foundation, I looked at the national movements across the country. And what I found to be interesting is that you'll have some national activists tell people across the country, hey, everybody protest on Saturday, shut down your city hall, so on and so forth. And for for me, being in Pittsburgh, I had these different relationships and I felt as though their instructions assumed that I didn't that people on the ground in those cities they didn't have the social capital to get things done efficiently. I thought about Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has a very strong philanthropic community. Pittsburgh is more of a small town than a big city where everyone's one degree of separation away from whoever they're trying to connect with. As I built relationships, the city became smaller and smaller. And I remember calling our former mayor and former police chief racist on Twitter and saying they didn't care about black people. And one of my mentors, who is an attorney in Pittsburgh, reached out to me and she inquired about if I knew the chief or not. And at that time, I didn't have a personal relationship with them. She set it up and we began having real discussions around community. And those discussions led to our friendship. I will say that just because we have a mutual respect and understanding of one another, which, you know, led to a friendship doesn't mean we agree on everything. But I don't agree with my father on everything either. And and so those relationships led to become the HERE Foundation, which we were able to bring, you know, the presidents of huge corporations in Pittsburgh, police officers, activists, state and federal judges together to lean into this solution of, you know, creating a safer Pittsburgh uh, for everyone. 
you know, we're in the early stages of doing that. I've already seen a shift in, in culture from the police officers that I have relationships with, but also a shift in the openness and, and willingness of, of community leaders to lean into those relationships as well. In regards to the police officer who, who shot me, he's actually still working. And I, I've actually, I, I met him, you know, and I, and I wrote about that experience in my memoir. And so many people ask, like, they're like, yo, like, why would you, like, how, how could you and, and why would you? And my thinking was this. We, we hear a lot of experts talk about what to do or what not to do during traffic stops and why they end up the, turning out, you know, the way they do negatively or why some traffic stops are more positive. I took a class at uh, Duquesne University and um, it was a psychology class. And I learned that when people don't feel safe, they experience fight, flight, fight, freeze or fawn, right? And I thought to myself, wow, I didn't feel safe and I took flight. And uh, he said he didn't feel safe and he jumped in my vehicle and shot me. The only way to really know the truth is, you know, for us to have a conversation. Because I recognize that my attorneys helped me to frame my story in a specific way legally, right? As the city's attorneys, you know, helped them frame their story a specific way legally. Well, the case was over and now we can have a frank conversation about what happened that night without the legal parameters. And so I was interested in having that conversation to figure out, you know, how we can make traffic stops more safe for everyone. One last thing to this is um, I have this ability to think two different perspectives in which I recognize through going to therapy. I have the personal perspective from, you know, Leon Ford, who has this lived experience where I was shot by a police officer, so on and so forth. I also am able to think through the lens of leadership. And um, the lens as a leader is a little bit more objective than my personal perspective. So my personal perspective may be, man, this officer tried to kill me. He was racist, so on and so forth. But me being objective, I'm able to weigh in several different perspectives to help find a solution that benefits the greater good, which is the community. You've talked a lot about finances and family, right? You, you, you got, a, you got a, a multi-million dollar civil settlement from the city, and you've talked a lot about how families are affected by by settlements, right? They sometimes they feel it's blood money. Sometimes it's hard to organize. What role has your family played in this process? Have they helped you organize the Here Foundation? You know, have there been conflicts? I'm sure. I'm sure that you going through therapy. I don't mean everybody in your family went through therapy. I'm sure there's some people who are still angry, who still have homicidal thoughts. What's it been like navigating your family through a tragedy? that hit you personally, but one that you're still pushing through and, and thriving despite of? The first piece, right, is my, my parents. My mom's very supportive, very loving, and she's just, she just wants me to be happy. My father is very supportive, 
very loving, but he's also very protective. So he was the one negotiating with attorneys for legal fees, right? He was the one, you know, uh, saying, well, this attorney seems like he's not for us. We gonna, Let's fire him. He's also the one that protected me from making different poor decisions about who I have around me. Like, my, 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 my dad's going to watch the room. My mom's going to assume that people are good. <laughs> there's also a level within my family of um, there's people who are, like, very inspired, and they see what I'm doing, and they, they love it, and they, they support it. There's also people who support it, who are inspired, but also, like, yo, I don't rock with the police at all. Like, I support you, but, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know about this. And then I've also ran into those issues with family around money, where I had to say no, and my no to them means I don't love you. As black people, and as a black man, I I only know our perspective, right? But, you know, I know culturally, when we say no to people we love around money, it's usually followed by, no, I don't have it right now, (laughs) right? It's like, if you got it, and, and someone you love ask, you're going to give it. Well, what happens when you're in a position when you do have it, but it's not your responsibility? And so, you know, that was tough for me to learn, you know, but I had to learn it because if 15 people are asking me for $500 every day, it adds up. And so it that was a huge challenge within itself. And I think that is very important. And when you get a settlement, they just wire the money. Ain't nobody talking to you about what to do or how to do anything. Nothing, right? Like, like they literally wire you the money and you're left to figure it out and pick up the pieces. Again, I think two things worked in my favor. One... It took a long time for me to settle my case from the moment I was shot. You know, you talk, you're talking about seven, eight years one, that went past. During that time, I was able to acquire some phenomenal mentors, you know, and without those mentors, I don't think I would be where I am today financially. This book, An Unspeakable Hope, Brutality, Forgiveness, and Building a Better Future for My Son, It's the perfect book. You know, here we are coming up on Father's Day. What are lessons that you have tried to impart to him about your experiences? What have you, I mean, again, he he was being born at the time that you were recovering. What are the conversations that you have with your son about your experiences with the police, your experiences as an organizer and an activist? What are these conversations like? What are you trying to get him to understand about, about his dad's life? It's interesting. My son has been next to me every step of the way. Not only was he born in the hospital when I was recovering, he's been at almost every protest. He's been in many of these meetings with financial advisors. He's been at speaking engagements. He's, you know, been coming to therapy with me. To those fathers out there listening, I know we, we pass down a lot of wisdom, a lot of good information, but I strongly believe that leading by example is much stronger than any information that we can share. So uh, make sure you practice what you preach 
because you're, our children are paying attention and they are much more observant than we like to give them credit for. What would you tell people, everybody listening right now, besides picking up your book, besides going to therapy, what would you tell people out there right now that they should start doing right now at this point to address gun violence and police brutality in their communities? Something that they can do now is get involved in their community. Who are the teachers in your neighborhood? Who sits on the school board? Who sits on the city council? Who are the state reps? We need to know these things. And the more involved we are in community, right? Who are those police officers in the, in, in the zone? Who are the commanders? Who is the chief? Who is the assistant chief? Oftentimes, we don't assume power in our communities because we don't know the who's who's. You know, and the people who are engaged, the people who do have these relationships, the people who do know who their judges are or know who is about to run for judge, you know, these are the people who have a, a level of influence within their communities. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're able to donate $5,000 or $5 or just help knock on some doors. All of these relationships are very important. And the more we lean into these relationships, even with the people we may not necessarily like, we should know who they are and we should seek to build relationships with them and build healthier relationships with them. And as we build healthier relationships with people within our communities, whether they live there or work there, we can change the quality of life for everyone who lives in that community. Entrepreneur and activist Leon Ford is the author of An Unspeakable Hope, Brutality, Forgiveness, and Building a Better Future for My Son. He's also the co-founder of the HERE Foundation, a community and police partnership in Pittsburgh. Leon, um, it's an honor. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks so much for joining me today on A Word. Thanks so much for having me. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.